I want to ask you all of a question. Have you ever watched a TV show or a movie and you find yourself cheering for the bad guy? Have you ever had that experience? You're watching a movie and suddenly there's 10 or 11 people that are, have a plan to uh, steal millions of dollars from a bank and you find yourself kind of cheering them on like, yeah, I hope they do it. Or you're watching two convicts that escape from prison and, and they, they escape and they're on their way out and they're getting close to the cops finding them. You're actually cheering for them like, I hope they get away with it. Have you ever found yourself doing that? See, some of you might be a little embarrassed to say, yeah, I do that, because I find myself embarrassed that I do that sometimes. Kind of wonder, like, what happened to my consciousness in the first 45 minutes of the movie that I'm, like, cheering for the bad guys? But let me call it, give you a little assurance that psychiatrists will tell you that's completely normal to cheer for the bad guys during movies. It's something that we all do. And it's interesting because if you read the headlines to a newspaper that said, you know, there's two escaped criminals from prison and uh, they escaped from jail, and your initial thought is, well, I hope they get caught. None of us are like, read the newspaper like, yeah, way to go. Or you don't read the newspaper, it says 10 people are trying to steal from the bank that you bank at, and you're like, oh, too bad they didn't succeed at that. No, we don't do that. Instead, we want those criminals to be caught when we read in the newspaper. So what's the difference? What's the difference between watching a movie and reading a headline of the newspaper? See, the big difference is identification. The big difference is when you can identify with a person. There's a big difference when you can relate to somebody in a movie or in a book. If you can relate to somebody, you have a shared experience or shared like or dislike Sometimes you'll find yourself, you'll cheer for that person even if they're doing something that you totally don't agree with. It's powerful how much just having a shared experience with somebody can actually give you a real heart of compassion for that person. That's why the goal of a really good author of a book or a movie wants you to identify with a character really quickly in that book. Because if you can identify with that character, you engage more in the story and you become kind of like this cheerleader on the sideline cheering on that person. So as we watch movies, you know, usually that first half hour, 45 minutes can often just be character development. They want you to know who is the character, what experiences they had in their life, or what was life for them, what were the big victories in their life, or what were the big tragedies in their life. A good book wants you to understand that because when you start identifying with a character, you start seeing yourself in that movie. And suddenly you begin to cheer for that character. See, the process of identification with a character is incredibly powerful. Sometimes you need to experience a similar situation to another person to understand what they are really going through. See, to allow yourself to identify with a person is also an act of compassion. It takes a lot of compassion to, to, have, to identify with a person. See, sympathy and empathy, those are wonderful things. Sympathy says, you know, I'm really sorry for your pain. Empathy says, I can feel your pain. And compassion goes one step further and says, I see your pain, I feel your pain, and I want to do something about your pain. I want to see to it that your life finds some freedom from the pain that you are experiencing. And that's why God sent Jesus to us. Somebody that could experience our pain, but also somebody that would have compassion for our pain. 
Someone that would actually alleviate the pain that we have in our life. And the biggest pain that we have in our life is separation from God. But that's what Jesus came to do. See, last week I talked to you about being known by God. Just how much power that has that God knows you. That God searches for us and he rescues us. I talked about last week when you open the Bible, you get to Genesis 1, and here Adam and Eve are created. And in Genesis 2, it says they're naked and unashamed. But by the time you get to chapter 3, they experience shame and they experience sin. And it's such a tragedy to watch how quickly you can go from innocence to experiencing shame. And psychiatrists will tell you a lot of interesting things about shame. They will tell you that a child is able to start experiencing shame from 18 months old. 18 months old, a human being can start experiencing shame, and that's why parenting and caregiving is so important. So when you recognize your little child experienced shame, you know how to speak to them directly. But it's also very interesting that they will tell you that humans don't experience, that do not experience the feeling of guilt until they're four or five years old. But you can feel shame so much quicker in your life. But these same psychiatrists will tell you something very interesting about shame. Shame always leads to isolation. Now, guilt, on the other hand, guilt usually does cause you to want to reconcile. You might not actually do it all the time, but there is a feeling that comes up in you when you experience guilt to say, i got to get this right with the other person. But shame is completely different. People never look for their way out of shame. Somebody else has to come and find you. And that's why it's so important that God knows us. Because God knows when you're in shame. And he comes and finds us. He comes and rescues us. He starts to take us out of that situation in shame. And how does God do that? He starts by asking you questions. That's what he did in the book of Genesis. He asked those questions of, where are you? How did you get in this situation? Did you do what I told you not to do? I think if I asked you, have you ever heard that voice inside of you said, how did you get here? See, that's the voice of God. That's the voice of God that finds you in your shame and says, hey, you need to get curious on how you got in this situation. That is God's beginning to pull you out of the situation. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to be known by God, to have God ask you a few questions. You also need to be encountered by Jesus. You need to be encountered by Jesus so you can begin to live a life of transformation. Last week I told you, I, remind, well, I reminded you that the goal of Lake Effect Church is that we are people devoted to Christ and his message to the world. And the only way that that is actually going to happen is because we are known by God, we're encountered by Jesus, and we're transformed by the Holy Spirit. Each of us goes through this on a daily basis. This isn't we go through this process once and we're done, but every single day we're known by God, we're encountered by Jesus, and we're transformed by the Holy Spirit so we can live a life of integration. The simple message of Jesus is that he wants to reverse the destruction that sin has caused in your life. So all through the gospel message, we see Jesus transforming the life of people. People go from being lost to being found, People go from being blind to seeing. People go from rejected to accepted. People go from unclean to clean. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the story of the man with leprosy, going from unclean to clean.
We read in Matthew 8, it says, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus said to him, don't tell anybody about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed from leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. This is a remarkable story of transformation. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to fully appreciate the story because we don't really understand the significance of leprosy. Now, after a year and a half of COVID in our culture, I think we get a little bit more about really contagious diseases, and we get a little bit more about what it means to quarantine, but I think leprosy kind of makes COVID look a little bit easy, because how destructive that leprosy really was. Leprosy was a non-curable skin condition. There's actually two chapters of the Bible in the Old Testament all geared to how, what do you do with a person that has leprosy or a skin disease. Leprosy was very hard medically. There's really no cure for it. There's nothing you could do if you had leprosy. But not only was it just a physical disease, it was a social disease. If you had leprosy, you had to quarantine. You were kicked out of your family's house. You probably had to go live in another neighborhood or another community with other people in exactly the same situation that you were in. It was also a very embarrassing disease because it would change your appearance. It would cause many challenges to the skin and your appearance, and so it was very awkward. And usually what would happen to a person with leprosy is they would end up losing every single thing. You lost your family, you lost your friends, you lost your job, you lost your income, you lost everything, and you really didn't have any hope of getting anything back. It was pretty much the end of the road. And if you had to get out of your little village, you had to go around town, you always had to walk around and yell, unclean, unclean, so everybody around could hear you in case they did not have leprosy so they could get out of the way. So you can see what a devastating this disease would do. Some people refer to leprosy and say it's basically living while you're dead. And usually the greatest hope that you could have when you had leprosy is maybe you'd die quickly and won't have to go through a lot of pain. And what's extra hard about leprosy is most people, the common thought in that day was the reason you have leprosy is because it's your own sin that you got this because of your sin. Could you imagine the hopelessness of having leprosy in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Something you had done wrong caused this. And there's no hope. There's no future. You just hope maybe I could die soon. That's how desperate this man was. So it goes without saying that in Matthew 8, when Jesus comes down the mountainside and he sees this man with leprosy, nobody expected that to happen in that story at all. Those people with leprosy, they, they, they lived over there. They would not come around the general population. But here this man comes and he approaches Jesus and he gets down in the dirt with humility and he says, Jesus, would you heal me? And Jesus did. Jesus completely healed this man. It's a remarkable story, but there's a detail in the story that we can't overlook. 
There's a detail that Matthew shares about the story that the other gospel doesn't, and that detail is Jesus was coming down the mountain. Why is there a mountain in this story? Mark never mentioned the mountain. Why does Matthew think it's important to mention the mountain? See, if you turn your Bible back a few chapters, you go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you see that Jesus was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus came down from the mountain there, he came in contact with a man with leprosy. Some of you know the Sermon on the Mount is considered one of the most famous, one of the most important sermons ever preached in the history of the world. Some people say that sermon was probably a two to three day sermon that he started and he probably stopped and then people came back. And what's interesting is that Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 and Matthew says it started with a great crowd and by the time you get to chapter 8 verse 1, it's called a massive crowd. So you see during those two or three days that Jesus was preaching, the crowd continued to grow and to grow and to get bigger and bigger. But I think there's something that Jesus, or the author Matthew, wants us to know more than Jesus just preached on a mountain. Mountains are significant. Mountains are all significant throughout the Bible because it was on a mountaintop that many of the heroes of the Old Testament would go to meet with God. It was on those mountaintop experiences that you would find the, a, a communion with God, a restoration with God. And so Matthew brings out that that's important for us to understand about the mountain. Mountains were significant. But you also remember one of the most significant stories of a mountain in the Old Testament was the story of Moses. I think most of us remember that Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and on his way down the mountain, he came in contact with a crowd that was all sinning. You remember that passage in, Math, in Exodus 20, Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments. He gets the Ten Commandments, which is a new way to live in a relationship with God. It's about a new covenant with God. And when, and when Moses comes down in Exodus 32, he's confronted with the Israelites all in very big sin. See, while Moses was up there, the Israelites, they got all impatient. They're like, why is it taking him so long to come down? So what they did was they thought, well, we're going to do it our way. So everybody got their jewelry together and they made this big old golden cow. They were going to worship God in their own way. Everybody came, they boiled down their jewelry, they made this big old cow. And not only that, but they all got drunk and had a big wild party. And Moses comes down from the mountain with the two tablets in his hand of the Ten Commandments about the new way of living through the Israelites. And he sees the Israelites in terrible sin. So what does Moses do? He takes the Ten Commandments and he throws them on the ground and he breaks them into a million pieces. That was a sign that the Israelites had broken their covenant with God and those destroyed. And what else Moses did? He had that cow melted down. He had it melted down. He had it pulverized. He had it mixed with water and he made it a liquid. And then he went to all the people and said, here's your cup. You drink this. You drink your own cup of your own punishment. You did something terribly wrong. You are going to drink the consequences of that. That's what Moses did when he came down the mountain, when he confronted sin. And now we go to the New Testament. How's Jesus going to react? See, Jesus comes down the mountain, and what is he confronted? He's confronted with a man with leprosy. 
That's considered the biggest sin of the time. If you had leprosy, there was no bigger sin. And Jesus comes down from the mountain, and there in front of him is a man with leprosy. How is Jesus going to respond? Is he going to throw the tablets on the ground? Is he going to make this man drink the cup of suffering? No, Jesus does something completely different. Something that nobody saw coming that day. See, Jesus is on the mountain of Mount giving the people a new way to live their life. Talking about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is going to be like, what the reality of the kingdom of God is going to be like for the people. And when Jesus comes down and he sees a man in sin, Jesus says, let me be broken. Let me be broken as a consequence of your sin. And Jesus says, I'll drink the cup of suffering. I'm not going to make the man of leprosy drink it. Jesus comes down with a new way of life. He says, this is how you're going to live in my kingdom. I'll take the punishment. I'll be broken for you. And I'll drink the cup of suffering for you. And Jesus says, I'm going to do that because I want you to be whole. I want you to experience integration. I want the man with leprosy to find hope and healing and restoration. Jesus ushers in a whole new way of living life. Suddenly life is dramatically different. But I'll tell you what, that Sermon on the Mount, some parts of that sermon you look at and it's like, whoa, this is good, I like it. But there's some parts of the Sermon on the Mount you think that's impossible. Jesus takes some of the Old Testament standards and he kicks them up a notch. I'm kind of surprised sometimes when I read that the crowd started out big and by the end it even got bigger because I think some people had been turned off by the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus raises the bar of expectation. We all know that in the Old Testament, if you commit adultery, well, that's a sin. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, it's a sin, but we're going to even kick it up higher. You even think about doing that and you're guilty of sin. You don't even have to do the act to be guilty of the sin. You just think about it in your head. Well, that's, that's going to be kind of difficult. If you have a hard time keeping the Old Testament law, how are you going to keep this new kingdom law? And then Jesus goes one step farther in Matthew 5, verse 48, and he says, Oh, also, you've got to be perfect, just like your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, let's be honest, that just sounds impossible. And it should sound impossible because it really, truly is. So how are you going to do this? How is anybody going to be perfect? You kind of wonder, Jesus, how can any of us do this? It's impossible. But see, that's the point of the entire Bible, that it is impossible. The point of the entire Bible is that you do need Jesus, that everybody needs Jesus. The point of the Bible isn't the law is too big or living in the kingdom of heaven is too big. The point of the Bible is that you need Jesus. So how's that going to happen? How are you going to have that relationship with Jesus so you can actually live in this kingdom of God? See, a lot of people think you have to climb up the mountain. That you have to climb up the mountain, you have to get to God, you have to get to Jesus. 
in order to live this kind of life that Jesus is talking about. But I think that's why Matthew is clear to say, Jesus came down the mountain. Jesus never expected anybody to climb the mountain to get to him. Instead, he said, I'll come down the mountain and I'll come to you. That's why we have a chance at actually being perfect because Jesus comes down to the mountain. And my guess is most of the people that there that day, they're probably thinking the same thing. Jesus, how in the world are we going to do what you're calling us to do? This is next to impossible. And then there comes the man with leprosy. Jesus is going to show the people listening to a sermon for the last two or three days how this is even possible. So they're walking down the mountain, and here comes this man with leprosy and stands in front of Jesus. Now, if you know the Old Testament law, you know it was illegal for that man to be there. That man did not have any right to be there. He should not have been there, but yet he comes because he's desperate. And that's a beautiful part of the story. This man was desperate. See, we know from Adam and Eve that when God knows somebody, he begins to flush them out of their isolation and begins to ask them those questions of how did you get in this mess? But then he needs to be encountered by Jesus. And that's where this man was. He comes face to face with Jesus. And what does he do? He gets down on the ground into the dirt. An act of humility, an act of surrender, an act of submission, an act of going back to where his whole life got started from in the dirt when God created him. And he's saying to God, I need to be reborn. I need to do over. I need you to do something. And that's at the point that Jesus meets this man. Jesus says, I'll be broken for you. I'll drink the cup for you. And I think this crowd is all wondering, what is Jesus going to do? They totally expect that Jesus is going to back away. But Jesus actually touches the man. Jesus didn't have to touch the man to be healed. In the very next chapter, Jesus heals somebody without touching him. But Jesus touched a man with a contagious skin disease. Who does that? Nobody. Nobody would touch you if you had a contagious skin disease. But Jesus touched this man to show him compassion, to show him love. But Jesus also did something that day. He proved to us that what is clean can make the unclean clean again. Jesus proved that day that the Old Testament law had been fulfilled by Jesus. Because up until that day, what was unclean would make the clean unclean. But it's a whole new day in the kingdom of God. Because suddenly, whatever is clean can make the unclean clean. And not only that, but now this man who is contagious with his uncleanliness is now contagious with the righteousness of God. That's what happened that day. Everything changed.
Suddenly, everything has changed. See, Jesus touched this man to show him compassion, to say, I see your situation, I understand your situation. And he touched him to show that we can become contagious with the righteousness of God. This is a new way of thinking. It's a new way of living. By the Old Testament law, that Jesus should now have been defiled. And Jesus should have now be uncleaned. But the new reality of the kingdom of God is Jesus is the righteousness of God. And whatever he touches will become clean. You remember what Paul said to Timothy? Or the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, you've been saved and called for a purpose. So I think in this passage, it could say, you've been saved and contagious. You are now saved and contagious with the righteousness of God. And whatever you touch will now become the righteousness of God as his ambassadors. That's a powerful transformation that happened that day. A powerful transformation that this man was healed, but also now that the clean has the power to clean anything unclean. Earlier I said that an author writes a story to help you identify with a character. And every good writer wants you to identify with a character really quickly. And in this story, we're supposed to identify with a man with leprosy. See, we are the man with leprosy. We are the person that didn't have a chance, didn't have a hope, and didn't have a future until we found Jesus as he came down the mountain. But this is a beautiful thing about Jesus. He meets you at the bottom of the mountain. He meets you at that place of desperation and hopelessness. And then Jesus walks you up the mountain so you can have transfiguration. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to walk you up the mountain so you can have that encounter with God because your relationship with God has been restored. And that's the beautiful thing about a life with Christ. He meets you at your lowest and he walks you up the mountain for transfiguration. And that's what we are called to be as a church. We're called to be as a church where people are known by God. They're encountered by Jesus, and then they experience transformation because of the life with Jesus, because Jesus is walking you up the mountain, and that's why I'm so excited for this prayer group, because it's a chance to encounter Jesus through prayer. It's a chance to encounter Jesus to see that transformation in your life, because the truth of the matter is, even if you are saved and you're healed from your leprosy and you found new life in Christ, it is easy to still experience isolation, or to experience shame, or feeling unclean, or feeling separated from your family. Sometimes we feel like we are in a situation in our life and there is nothing that we can do. Or you feel like a person with leprosy that you're stuck and there's no way out. Or you look at your financial situation and you say, what can I do about that? That's why we need to be encountered by Jesus each and every day. It never stops. 
It doesn't stop just because you found salvation. To be encountered with Jesus is something that we need to experience every single day. And every single day, we need to be walking up the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus to find new hope and new healing and restoration. So my question as I close today is what do you need Jesus to encounter in your life today? What in your life is feeling a little bit unclean? Or what in your life is feeling a little bit hopeless? Or what in your life is feeling a little bit discouragement? Where do you need to meet Jesus today and what does he need to do for you today? If Jesus was here meeting you at the bottom of the mountain, he said, what can I do for you today? How would you respond? What would you respond to Jesus' invitation of what do you need right now? It's a good question to wrestle with. Because usually what we try to do is walk up the mountain on our own and find our own transfiguration. And when Jesus meets you on the bottom and says, what can I do for you today? How would you respond? What can Jesus do for you today? I'm going to pray now. I'm going to pray for all of us. And then, if you want specific prayer, we want to come forward and pray for you. You don't have to. I'm going to pray for everybody now, but if there's anything specific you want, just come forward now, and I'll have Lori and Becky can pray, and Jeremy and Ted, if you guys want to come pray too, if people come up, it's, you know, volunteer basis. Yeah. Let me start praying, and then you can come up. God, we come before you today. And God, we thank you that you sent your son to come down the mountain to meet with us. That you, Lord, you meet us at different places in our life. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we ask, Lord, I ask God that you'd minister to each person that is here. And would you minister to each person that is online today? Lord, a lot of us have been experiencing discouragement and hopelessness. A lot of us experience what it feels like to be the man with leprosy, to kind of feel cast out and to feel but unclean or feel like you have no place to call home. Lord, I pray for each person listening to me right now, Lord, that you administer to them with your Holy Spirit. That your Holy Spirit would administer encouragement and hope and healing and restoration to the people that are listening to me. God, I pray that you'd help us to focus our eyes on you right now. God, I thank you that your word says greater is the spirit of God in us than any weapon formed against us. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that the word that you that are in us is more powerful than anything that is said against us. And God, I pray for any person listening to me today that maybe you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you haven't come to that place of desperation where you wanted to invite Jesus into your life like the man with leprosy did. 
I pray today that maybe this would be your day to accept Jesus. Maybe this would be your day to cry out to Jesus and to say, come rescue me from my situation. But God, I just pray for anybody experiencing hopelessness right now that you'd minister to them in that deep place of their heart. Anybody who needs discouragement, I pray that you would minister to them. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.